I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts What's starving my refugee population with soy product? Well, Jesus. Jesus. What a, what a mess. Oh, my God. Fuck. Uh, Chris, you got you to gotta pull me out of this tailspin. We're on a ter- starting on a terrible, terrible note here. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it's okay. We're, 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 we're back. Part two. Chong Zong Chong. Part two. The rise of the working class. My man Jung. We are we are back. Fucking we're back. We're back in Warlords. Lit we're back as in hell. Fucking everybody got a dick the size of a bunch of coins. Just a just a rad war criminal. Yep. And now we're gonna watch it all fall apart. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Thank God. He's, he does have it coming. He does have it coming. Yeah. I like his I like his chutzpah, but yeah, he's got it coming. Thrilled to hear that we are going to fuck him up. Let's go. Let's have his uppance come. Like right, but first, we're gonna first we're gonna fuck up a lot of other people. So, yeah. Well. yeah. yeah. All right. On May nineteenth, nineteen twenty-five, a group of eight factory delegates representing striking workers at a Japanese-controlled cotton plant in Shanghai met with their opposite number from the factory to discuss the workers' demands. A brawl broke out, and a Japanese foreman murdered a well-established labor organizer, and the resulting fight injured the other seven delegates. Now, this, you know, for very obvious reasons, pissed off Shanghai's unions and 10,000 workers, which was at that point one of the largest demonstrations of workers in Shanghai's history, showed up to his memorial service on May 24th. Now, on May 30th, protesters marched on a police station that had arrested some of their comrades on the 24th. And when they got to the station, the British police opened fire into the crowd. When the slaughter was over, 10 Chinese men, women, and children lay dead on the streets of Shanghai. 
Another 50 were wounded. This moment, on this crowded street in Shanghai, changed everything. Ba Jin, the great Chinese novelist and anarchist, wrote this description of a student's reaction to the slaughter in Shanghai. Quote, At the entrance to Yunnan Road, he saw the child who had been killed a short while before. He thought, about half an hour ago, the crowd was marching peacefully towards the police station to ask the police to set free students who had been unjustly arrested. They thought the police were human beings endowed with reason and human sympathy. That human blood flowed <laughs> in their veins. <laughs> That's a mistake with cops. <laughs> they thought that uniforms and weapons could not have destroyed their human nature. But reality proved they were bloodthirsty beasts. On the most crowded street of the city, they deliberately slaughtered unarmed people. For this, there was no precedent in Chinese history. The imperialist oppression that it endured for so many years ached like a deep wound in his heart. He struggled inwardly. He felt the time for patience was over. He felt he wanted to spill his blood, to sacrifice his young life that he might show that not all among his people were lambs that allowed themselves to be led without resistance to the slaughter. He looked again at the corpse of the murdered child. His eyes shone with fire. His whole body began to burn as though on fire. His heart beat violently. Now, I, I think this is a feeling that all of us know now. Just the sheer breathtaking rage of seeing the police murder a child. Mm -hmm. Of seeing a child's corpse lying dead on the pavement. And Yeah, I, I, that, is, yeah. that is now a universal thing, for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I want to pause on that feeling for a second. I want to pause on the rage, on the grief... On, on the sort of the raw and mounting horror of the realization that the cops murder kids in the street. And I, I want you to hold on to those emotions because there's been an enormous effort to get Westerners to think that Chinese people are you know, fundamentally different than they are, that Chinese people are inherently authoritarian, that we're all bound by a sort of traditional Confucian hierarchy that we all follow reflexively, that, it, that it's baked into our culture, and even at the most extreme cases, our genetics, at a level that makes us fundamentally different than the quote-unquote freedom-loving people of the West. And I want you to think about that student staring at a child's corpse in a bloody street in Shanghai. And I want you to think about how he felt the same despair, the same grief, the same rage that we do. And I want you to remember this single lesson without which you cannot understand what is about to happen. They are like us, and they fought like hell. Immediately after, 200,000 workers joined the largest general strike in Shanghai's history. The next day, the communist labor organizers founded Shanghai's General Labor Union, or the GLU. 117 unions joined almost immediately. Every part of Shanghai society moves. Chinese business owners, so outraged at the imperialist murders that for a second their class abandoned them, contributed to their strike funds and took to the streets themselves. So did Shanghai's incredibly powerful organized crime gangs, the Green and Red Gangs. We're, we're going to get into more of them in a bit. Um, Zhang Zhongzhong and Zhang Zhuling sent troops to suppress the uprising, but even their troops couldn't hold the city against the power of the entirety of Chinese Shanghai. A new force had taken the stage of Chinese history the Chinese working class. It had driven all other classes into the streets and pitched them into open battle with the police and the warlords. It had, in a single day, transformed Shanghai from the playground of the British, French, and Japanese imperialists into the capital of the Chinese working class. Now, yeah, Robert, I don't, I don't know if, you, if you've read anything about Shanghai or just anything about any large city that was written by a British dude before about 1945, uh, they, they they inevitably call 
any sort of large city in the east, the, the Paris of the Orient. Yeah. Now, Shanghai is one of the cities that's famously called this. And on May 30th, the meaning of those words changed completely. With this uprising, Shanghai, you know, did finally become the 20th century's Paris in that after May the 30th, it was to go into full-scale armed revolt five more times in the 20th century. Jeez. Shanghai's working class, yeah, in, in every way the equal or even the superiors of the Parisian mobs would single-handedly drive the warlords, the nationalists, and the communists alike from the city. Fuck yeah. Hell yeah, Shanghai. Yeah. They're, so they're, they, it's they, incredibly impressive. Yeah. They just, I had no idea any of this had happened, actually. Yeah, it, it's, it's really, it, this is one of, like, sort of the lost stories of the 20th century, which is, which is the story of Shanghai just Shanghai becoming indisputably the, the world's like great revolutionary city in the way that sort of Paris was in the 1900s. And, and this is because it starts because a fucking cop kills a kid. Yep. And, and I, and I think, and I think that's a, as an entry point is helpful because, you know, there, there, there's a tendency to sort of, to, to, to turn this whole period into something that was like inevitable by class forces or whatever that, you know, this is some kind of weird historical object or that like the communists were behind all of this. And it's like, no, people, people, people go on strike. People are in the streets because they watched, like they, they saw the physical bodies of children in the streets that had been like killed by the police. Yeah. And these had all been people who had been dealing with, um, Jung and his bullshit and the other warlords and the violence and brutality that they carried out for a while. And it just, I guess seeing a dead kid, you know, there is something yeah. about that that, like, you're just like, well, I, this is too much. Like, I've been pushed and, too far. We've all been pushed too far. It's time to fuck some shit up. Yeah, and the other thing about this that I, that I think is really important is that the they're not killed by like Chinese police or Chinese soldiers. These are originally it's a Japanese foreman, and then it's it's British police. Yeah, and that part of it just like it drives. Well, I mean, well, we can, you know, it, it, it starts this revolt that just spreads like wildfire. And, you know, within a couple of days, there's a huge protest in another city near Shanghai. And the British open fire into the crowds with machine guns. They kill another eight people. Jesus. And this, yeah, this brings more people in the street. Within, within three days, uh, the revolt spreads to the north. And there's 30,000 students and workers on strike in Beijing in nearby Tunjin, there's 200,000 people show up to a protest. And Tunjin, this is the center of the power of the warlord armies. And it's there in August of 1925 that the movement sees its first real defeat. Zhang Shuling's armies working with British intelligence. And this is, this is another thing. So, so th there's a complicated relationship between the imperialist powers and the various warlords. They'll, they'll sort of back factions. Zhuling's very often accused of being a sort of like a stooge of the Japanese imperialists. And it's not quite true. Like he is supported by them, but he just sort of like disobeys them. But the one thing that happens immediately is that anytime one of these strikes happens, like all of the warlords and all of the sort of imperial powers, just like lockstep. And yeah, in, in August, Chuling's armies and a certain group of white Russian mercenaries with whom we are now all familiar, mm -hmm. retake the city and slaughter dozens of workers. But even this doesn't stop the revolt, and it continues to spread into the south. Um, in, in, in the nationalist heartland in Guangzhou, in the very far south, wor workers massed on the border with British-occupied Hong Kong. The workers of Hong Kong rushed to join them. Now, now Hong Kong is is somewhat unique among Chinese cities in this period in that it's it's there there have been general strikes going on in Hong Kong. I mean, since the eighteen hundreds, 
Um, and j- just three years before this, there's something called there's there's this, a massive semen strike. And I, I found this sort of yeah 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 I was I was just gonna, I was just gonna go past it when yeah. I wrote that I knew <laughs> this yeah. was gonna happen yeah yeah I, uh, I found this this great description of it in Libcom though which which I think is also useful to to understand the effects of the later strikes and so it goes quote disaster for the bosses not only rail workers and stevedores but bakers cooks clerks coolies and servants joined the strike. The ruling class now had to cook its own food and queue to buy it. No clothes were washed, no shirts were ironed. Ministers had to wander government buildings, delivering their own messages, but there was no one to carry out their orders. The army was called out and commandeered food and vehicles. Workers were pressed into forced labor. With their workforce disappearing, the bosses banned anyone from leaving Hong Kong, which meant no one could visit the graves of their ancestors in China. A fearful thing. A freedom march against the ban led to confrontation, riot, and massacre. With the colony descending into, dare we say it, anarchy, government crumbling and business losses mounting, merchants lost $500 million during the strike, a massive sum, the bosses capitulated. Now, that strike had had, I think, about 100,000 people in it, and it pales in comparison to what's going to happen now. Um, on... This is this is the beginning of what's called the Canton Hong Kong strike. Um, on June 23rd, 1925, British police officers opened fire into a crowd of 130,000. They killed 52 Jeez people. Christ. Yeah, including four children younger than 16. Yeah, the, this is this is this is surprise bastard imperialism. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it always finds its way in. Yep. Yeah, and that is a very British thing, just firing into a crowd of thousands of people. With Yep. Yeah, they, they did a lot of that. Um, yeah, that, yeah. No, okay. Totally scans. Yep, and the workers in Hong Kong respond with the city's longest general strike. Um, 250,000 workers, just they just leave the city for Guangzhou, which you know brings all of Hong Kong to a standstill because almost yeah. their entire labor force is just gone. Like, they, they just leave. Um, there's yeah, further there's there's a boycott of yeah yeah and, and the, the other thing I do is there's this boycott of British goods that reduces British revenue in the city by forty to fifty percent and and th- this lasts for sixteen months and the, the only reason Hong Kong survives is that like basically the only thing the UK government is doing in this period is just shipping these massive bailout packages to Hong Kong now I know I mentioned earlier that there was these massive protests in Tianjin, and th- those are the first. That's the first movement to go down after sort of warlord troops move in to suppress it. But what's interesting about what happens in the rest of the country is that for the most part, these strikes aren't put down by the warlords at all. And so to understand why, we need to look at sort of the the, the class composition of these movements. Um, at the beginning of of the May the Thirtieth movement, which is what this whole wave of unrest comes to be known after the sort of May the Thirtieth massacre. You have a, a really solid alliance of you know everyone in Chinese society, and I, I mean like, like everyone is pissed off about the British soldiers just like slaughtering children in the street, and it produces this really unwieldy alliance of workers, business owners, and organized crime, all sort of like fighting imperialism together. But like, okay, that's not a coalition that has any shared interest other than sort of just hatred of the British, and you know, okay, hatred of hatred of the perfidious Albion is a powerful force, but it's not enough to hold. A political coalition together and especially because you know th- this this is the period where like the general strike really enters into sort of the like the the, the protest vocabulary of, of of china's working class 
And this starts to just absolutely freak out the bosses. And you know, then th- there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are very scary if if you're a boss in like Shanghai 1925. One of the other ones is the workers in Shanghai start organizing what's called the dog beating brigade, which is this <laughs> it's this rove of workers with axes who run around beating up scabs and people who don't support the labor movements. It rules. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, dude with axes is like, nope, nope. You you better support well, the labor movement. If you want to keep a strike going, you're gonna need a couple hundred dudes with axes. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a lesson people should be taking for the general strike we should have, and I don't know tomorrow or whenever. Yeah, and, and and I and I think frankly, like the fact that we no longer have people ha- have uh, dog beating brigades with with axes is like a real reason for the decline of the American of the, the the sort of organized American working class. Well, bad pitch here, but we're going to have to change the name because Americans are not going to get on board anything called the Dog Beating Brigade. Now, That's true. We call them the Rat Beating Brigade. Beating Brigade, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think we. I think you can get people back on board. <laughs> yeah, but you know... these dogs is angry. Oh, no. About the Dog Beating Brigade. Yeah, but I mean, that's fair. <laughs> it's a different culture, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, they only beat people, not dogs. Yeah, they're not beating people. They're not like, or they're not beating dogs. They're not like Hitler. They're yeah. beating people, which is also like Hitler, um, but in a good way. All right, I don't. I've I've <laughs> I've, I've lost the thread. Let's continue. <laughs> now, now a, a big reason for the sort of level of militants and for the level of organization that the workers of Shanghai have is because the, both the communists and the nationalist party have allied with Shanghai's powerful Green Gang. Now, the Green Gang is the single best organized political force in Shanghai by a very significant margin. Um, you know, most of what they're sort of famous for is the fact that they control Shanghai's opium trade, and you know that makes them a lot of money. But in terms of organizational strength, their real power lies in their control over the workplace. The, the Green Gang controls almost every shop floor in Shanghai, and you know the, the ones they don't control tend to be controlled by other gangs. And you know, when I say they control the shop floor, what I mean is that they're almost completely in control of the hiring and firing process to the point where to even come to Shanghai in the first place, right? And this is important because Shanghai is a city that's like 70 to 80% immigrants from other parts of China. So it's based almost entirely on migrant workers. And to even get into the city, you have to have someone who's in the gang to like vouch for you. And you know, once 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 you have someone to, like a foreman to vouch for you, you have you have you have a friend to vouch for you with the foreman, and they can hire you. But but this this whole process means that almost the entire working class in Shanghai is like affiliated with one of these gangs, particularly the Green Gang. And it's sort of interesting. You, you can see attempts to sort of like defame some of these workers that that people will go be like, oh, they're they're affiliated with the gangs, and it's like literally every worker in Shanghai is affiliated to some extent with a gang because that's the only way you can get a job. And this gives them an enormous amount of political power on top of sort of the wealth they're able to extract from Chinese workers in the opium trade. And they're significant enough that a big part of communist organizing in Shanghai becomes like infiltrating these gangs because the communists, you know, very quickly figure out that if you can't part of the, if you're you're not like part of the gangs, you you can't get a job and you can't do any labor organizing. So, so they, they turn into the strategy of like organizing the gang foreman because the gang foreman can just like boot everyone out of a shop and like start a strike. And th- this this really kind of weirdly and surprisingly actually works. 
And the communists are able to win over like a good number of foremen. And this is this is one of the sort of the basis of organized labor in the city. But but this also means that even within the sort of communist unions, the gangs have like a decent level of influence because you know they're, they're reliant on gang members to sort of bring people in. Now, at the beginning of the conflict, this works in organized labor's favor because you know both both the gangs and the and the communists and like the labor organizers are all pulling on the same side, and that means they could just like pull everyone out of work. But as as the strikes go on, the the largely communist controlled general labor union grows more and more powerful, and the Green Gang looks at this and starts to get worried about like, you know, organized labor creating an independent base of power, which is yeah. a real threat to their control of the workplace, and they start looking for allies to put the strikes down. Now, Chinese business owners ha- had initially like backed the protests, but you know because they were pissed off that the British were shooting people. But they very quickly realized that uh, letting u- letting workers have unions is extremely bad for them, even if those unions were temporarily targeting foreign owners. Mm. Yeah. So, so one one of their major complaints is that there's there's a strike. You know, like one one of the, the the strikes that's going on is at this like Japanese owned power plant. But because the power plants they they like they can't be run by scab workers, uh, this cuts off businesses. This cuts off like power to Chinese businesses too. So the business owners get pissed off, and they they get together with the Green Gang. They try to like start ending the strikes. Um, the gang like storms the offices of the GLU with like knives and iron bars, and just like beats the crap out of a whole bunch of the the GLU organizers, and they're able to just like destroy the headquarters. And they also start to sort of like exert their influence over the workforce to like bring people back to work. And this eventually is able to do what the British government and the warlords couldn't, which is bring the strike to an end by forcing the GLU to sort of like settle with the Japanese government over compensation for like the original death of the labor organizer. And a a very similar process, although in Hong Kong, it's more Chinese business owners backing the British than it is organized crime, like just beating the crap out of people. But this a very similar thing plays out in Hong Kong, and after 16 months, the strike ends, and it's kind of a disaster because after this, the Brits just like they turn Hong Kong into a fortress. Almost all British social policy for the next really hundred years, specifically designed to make sure that this this kind of strike never happens again. Yeah, it seems like um, I could name some other governments that took a little bit of a leaf out of their book in that regard. Yep, and there's actually, there's a fun, well, fun, I say fun, but there, there's an interesting thing about this where Shanghai, like, not Shanghai, sorry, Hong Kong is basically the, the place where, like, most riot tactics are produced, or, like, ant- like, police anti-riot techniques are produced. So, like, there, there's another bunch of riots in 1967, and the what the British police does against those riots are, like, that. that's where, that's, like, the the, the template for all riot police comes from, is, is from the British police in, in Hong Kong in 67, and you, you you see this with like waves of this with the earlier strikes too. I mean, so, they're fucking good at it. I, yep. I, 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 I can, it's also, I'm going to guess where a lot of protester tactics for dealing with, I mean, I can say that just in terms of like last year in Portland, people yeah. were using tactics. They'd seen Hong Kong, uh, do first. Um, yeah, it's weird that I, I, I had no idea it went back that fucking far, but yeah. And there, there's interesting stuff here too, because, the, so basically, like the, the the way the way these conflicts always work is that like both sides are constantly trading, like tactics with their sort of like equivalent numbers. So you, you have like the thin blue line international, but yeah. then you also have you know you have like the actual international in in this period. So you have sort of, which is like, a the, the the kind of left socialist international. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 
by by this by this point you're sort of in like the the the, the USSR third international yeah but be, even before that you have a lot of people who were like workers in uh or like for example like the, the like one of one of the labor movements in Egypt for example starts because a bunch of like like Italian anarchists like show up and do a bunch of organizing and this happens in Brazil too where you know the, the general strike like just sort of spreads as workers move around the world yeah so so you have these dynamics and they 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 sort of clash here and in hong kong like the ruling class just straight up wins but in shanghai even though the 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 strike collapses and like another ruler takes the city and executes a bunch of the labor leaders but it doesn't matter because may the 30th had already sort of had changed everything about chinese politics and this this is one of the biggest factors behind the rise of the next phase of of sort of chinese history which is the rise of the nationalists now, the KMT or the Nationalist Party is it's one of the oldest political factions left in China at this point. But, you know, by the time you hit about 1920, they they're a complete mess. They've had a, a series of disastrous revolts, like all their leaders keep fleeing the to uh Japan and, you know, they're sort of clinging on to like a portion of Guangzhou province like the far south. And, you know, I mean, organizationally, it's a disaster. I mean, they, they have, they don't, they don't have meetings. Like, they don't have a party program. They don't have a constitution. They, 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 like, they don't even have, like, a newspaper. Like, yeah. They don't have a party publication. And the Soviets look at this and are like, this is a disaster. And so they, they send Michael Borodin, who's like, he's an old Bolshevik organizer, um, to, to, to meet and advise the KMT's leader, Sun Yat-sen. And this... Borden, Borden basically tells Sun Yat-sen, like, okay, you need to reorganize this party on, like, Leninist lines. And Sun Yat-sen is like, okay, so if I don't get Soviet aids, there's literally no way we can ever win this war. So he he lets Borden carry out his reforms. And within, like, within a series of matter of months, it's just completely transformed. They they, they turn to this, this really incredibly effective political organization. They, they suddenly, they have branches all over the country. They have, they're all holding meetings. They're spreading propaganda. And they're they're also sort of aided in this by the USSR. Yeah, the, the USSR is going to do a lot of things to help the, the KMT in this period. One of the one of the biggest ones is that they drag the Chinese Communist Party, like literally kicking and screaming into an alliance with the KMT. The Communists just like hated the Nationalists for various doctrinal reasons, but the USSR is just like you're going to ally with them. And th- this is called the First United Front, and notably, it's the First United Front because there's going to be more United Fronts because. Welcome because they're not history. as unified as yeah maybe they yeah you know, we'll 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 see we'll see how this alliance turns out in a bit but but you know in 1924 like every member of the communist party joins the nationalist party and this gives them like a th- this makes the nationalists like significantly more effective as a political organization um you know and the, the KMT on top of the communists they, they've always had a few other bases of support like they're, they're they have a bunch of backers in like the Chinese diaspora and like U- the U.S. and Indonesia. They have a lot of like they have a lot of banking support from people in Hong Kong and Guangzhou. And w- with the reforms of the party in 1923 and the May the 30th movement in 1925, the KMT gets three new extremely powerful bases of support. They get the full military backing of the Soviets who are going to pump more money into the KMT than like any other international power is going to spend in this entire war. They get this one, one of the one of the things the Soviets do is they they start helping to train this new officer corps for 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 the for this the thing called the National Revolutionary Army that the KMT is sort of building up to go fight the warlords. 
And the third thing that they, they build up, especially after the giant political shifts of, of 1925, is they start gaining this huge base in the Chinese masses. And, and when I say the Chinese masses, I mean, the, they have the entire ideological spectrum in this organization. I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of coalition that you look at it and it's like something has gone wrong in history. Like yeah, there are too yes. many people are agreed about the same things. Yeah, like the, the, there's like proto fascists. There's like these right like right wing like hardcore nationalists. There's these very like traditional sort of conservative Confucians. Like there's there's these conservative Chinese business owners. There's a bunch of landlords. You have you have the sort of old revolutionary like Republicans, and then on the left you have a bunch of socialists, communists, and anarchists, and they're all in the same work. And this is you know. You look at that coalition, it's like, there's no way that, like, the fascists, the landlords, and the communists are, like, all going to be on the same side of this I by mean, the it end. it makes me think a lot about some of what you saw in Fume after World War One, where you've got these, these anarchists and these communists and kind of every, just, like, all of these different people. And, 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 and there's a similar, like, Fume, which we talk about in our Gabriel D'Annunzio two-parter, which was, like, this city in Italy that was taken by this... Um, madman, uh, 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 artist, kind of proto-fascist guy, but like a bunch of people on the left and the right, kind of started engaged in this utopian project there for about a year, and it was a reaction to the chaos and the violence of World War One and the fact that like all of these powers in the region, these great militant powers, had completely fucked society up, and I think you're seeing the same thing in China. These like the old government is gone. These warlords are not helping anybody but themselves. Um, they're just like fucking and drinking and murdering tens of thousands of people. And so you get this pretty broad coalition of people who are all able to be like, well, fuck how things are going. Yeah. And, and I think the other part of this is that the KMT built like cells, like nationalists, like sell themselves like as, as like the word we're, we're the revolutionary party. And it's like anyone who wants a revolution, like left or right, like, doesn't doesn't matter. Just join up, and you'll 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 get the revolution that like over that overthrows the the warlords and like restores the power of the nation. And then after that, we can all fight over like, you know, rest of our political differences. And they sure did. Oh yeah. yeah. You know who doesn't overthrow Chinese civil society and start a period of mass bloodletting that will eventually lead to the deaths of millions. The products and services that support the show they they do not none of them <laughs> none of them have yet done that um maybe one day maybe one day i have a i have a good feeling about blue apron i think they might go all the way but we'll see the evidence keeps pouring in at this point the facts are undeniable it's an open and shut case monopoly go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? 
It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. Thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and we're back. All right, let's let's continue. So the nationalists have one more powerful base of support. And this this base is one of the few bases that's going to that goes from like their origins in the early 1800s, the late 1800s to like after they're the government of Taiwan. And this base is organized crime. Now, a lot of historians don't really want to touch on this, and there's a good reason for that, because up, up until the 90s, it was genuinely extremely dangerous to write about the KMT's ties to organized crime. Like, it, it, like it, it's bad enough that, so there, there's a Taiwanese journalist named uh, Henry Liu, who, who writes an unar- unauthorized biography of, like, Chiang Kai-shek's brother, who's, like, the president of Taiwan. He, he writes an unauthorized biography, and he gets assassinated by the KMT in California in, like, 1982. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, like it's they bad. They get around. Yeah, and they, like they're they had they have a whole international network. They have all this sort of opium and heroin distribution. It's yeah, sadly we we don't have enough time to do this whole story because it's it's a whole thing. But needless to say, one of the big ways that the KMT, especially the KMT's right wing, funds itself is that they're 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 just like up to their asses in the opium and the heroin trade, and they have you know they have really deep ties to organized crime in ways that are going to be very important in a second. Now, the KMT left also has ties to organized crime. Like we talked about, like the the the, the communists and the, like the sort of left nationalists are affiliated with like the Green Gang and Chinese organized crime because they have to for labor organizing. Uh, the the KMT right is just they they just are the opium trade. Um, Hell yeah, they are. Yeah. So if if you remember back last episode, Zhang has a nationalist general named Chen assassinated. Yeah, that mm-hmm. guy. That guy was the head of the Green Gang at the time, and a, a large part of why he thought he could just like go back to Shanghai and start a revolution was that he was in, you know, he was in control of the green gang, which means that he had control of the green gang's opium, uh, like no, well, opium apparatus, but he had the, he had control of the green gang's like labor apparatus. And so he was like, well, okay, I can like start a strike and then there'll be an armed revolution. I could take the city. And you know, it doesn't work because Zhang like kills him, but you know, th- this is the, like the level of ties be- between the KMT right and organized crime. Like Shanghai Shek uh, pledges his loyalty to like a, a later green gang leader. In Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek, for those of you who don't know, uh, Chiang Kai-shek is, by, by the end of this story, Chiang Kai-shek is going to be the guy, the single person in control of the entire Nationalist Party, and he has pledged loyalty to a member of the Green Gang, and makes another Green Gang guy the head of Shang, like, Shanghai's director of opium suppression, which is I extremely mean, fun. I would disagree with that. I think opium should be allowed to thrive um in the open marketplace and most importantly uh in in my refrigerator but uh please continue well you know i mean admittedly so does chiang kai-shek which is what which is yeah, which is I, why I the have no issues with chiang kai-shek is what i'm learning uh we're we're both on on the same page about the only thing that matters opium and heroin too although the heroin's like a bit later yeah this. i mean it's it's literally the opiate of the masses yeah yeah well, no, because most people can't afford it. It's the opium of me. It's the opiate of me <laughs> and Chiang Kai-shek. It's our opiate. And and yeah, all right. Sorry. And it, and it makes a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're not a, for some people, I, I, I'm a purist, but, you know. You're just I, in it for the love of the game. In it for the love of the opium, you know? Why would you, why would yeah. you, you don't want to commodify something you love, you know? It's like if you make your hobby your job and it ruins it. Um, you you don't want to you don't want to lose out on the love of of the game. The game being opium, makes sense. Now, yeah, the Green Gang on their hand, like they're, they're you know they're, the Green Gang is in, in it for the love of the money, and you know they're, they're, so they they funnel all of this into into like they funnel a bunch of their money into into the KMT, and you know with, with the KMT with their bases now solidified in their armies fueled by the power of Russia, heroin money, and the Chinese masses, they set out to conquer all of China. Okay, that's a little bit pretty ambitious, but yeah. go off. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay, b- before we fully get into what's become known as the Northern Expedition, there's one more person who we have to talk about, who mm-hmm. I believe, although I'm not 100% sure, is showing up for the first time in Bastard Pod history as a character, and that is Mao Zedong. Oh, yeah, we talked a little bit during the um the, the, the Lysenko episodes mm. because of the, um you know, the famine and um, yeah, uh, during the Great Leap Forward. But yeah, we really have. And he's one he's one of the guys who's I, I always get to um, um, uh, daunted by the sheer amount of yeah. shit to cover when you have to talk about that guy's yep. life. 
Yeah, we, yeah, obviously, like, we cannot really get into Mao here, but he does one thing that's extremely important in this story, which is that he, in 1926, he, he, he's organizing a peasant movement in Hunan province. And he's really good at this. Uh, the, the, the newly formed, like, Hunan Provincial Peasant Association quickly grows to 5 million members. And they start to seize land from wealthy landholders and, you know, they start to arm themselves in order to do this. And, you know, credit where credit is due. Mao, good on land reform. He's, okay, bad on sparrows, bad on workers' democracy, bad on famines. But, you know, land reform, he's, he's pretty good. And, and the peasants, like, the peasants agree with this. But unfortunately, the, the local elites are extremely unhappy that the peasants are taking all their land. And so they start to form their own militias to stop the peasants from taking more land. And pretty soon, there's just another civil war going on in Hunan province between the peasants and the large landowners. Yeah, because, you know, the, we, I mean, we needed the thing more about wars. Civil wars is you get one, you get a lot. <laughs> yep. And then they keep happening. It's great. Yeah. Now, now, sort of interestingly, the CCP is actually extremely pissed off that the peasants are taking all this land because, you know, as, as I said earlier, right, part of the KMT's base is landlords. And those people not happy about the prospect of land reform. And, you know, the CCP is still trying to hold the, like, the CCP, KMT, United Front together. And, you know, Robert, you might be thinking to yourself, what kind of brain geniuses would look at a coalition that includes a bunch of landlords and Mao and go, yeah, this is a basis for a stable working relationship? <laughs> and I mean, yeah, he's not famed for his love of landlords. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the answer to that is uh, Bastard's Pod alum Joseph Stalin and also Trotsky. Ah, uh, yeah, there's my Jay boys. Stahl. There's my good boys. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe Stahl looks, Jay Stahl looks, looks at Mousy Dung, reads up on this guy's background and says, you know who can get along with landlords? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> this guy. The, 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 the funny thing about this, right? So, so okay, we'll, we'll get really fully into what like the brain trust in Moscow thinks about this later. But like, okay, so the fun part about what what's about to happen in China here is that so it's a complete fiasco. All the communists die. Stalin mm -hmm. looks at this and sounds, uses it sounds this. Like, sounds like a Stalin thing. Yeah, to yeah, be yeah. Honest. But, but yeah. it gets worse. It gets worse. And th this this runs into my theory of every every critical moment in world history, you can find a decision that Stalin made that made it worse. And mm -hmm. this one, it's not just this. Stalin also is like he, so. He he the, the the lesson that he takes from from this conflict. He's, he takes a bunch of really weird lessons from it, and he try and he tries to force the uh, the Communist Party in Palestine to like take a completely weird line based off of what happened in China, and that's like one of the reasons that like it completely fails, and is like one of the reasons that everything goes to shit in Palestine. So, yeah, good good job, Stalin. Uh, he's gonna fuck everything up in China, and then he's gonna do it again in Palestine, and it's it's great. It's it's a good time. Yeah, no, he's 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 he really. He, I mean, he was good at staying in power yeah he had he was less good at everything that was not directly related to staying in power yep uh, but man was he good at staying in power oh, yeah. you can't fault him on that <laughs> all right so jay stall jay stall fucks around and gets a whole lot of communists killed yeah well we'll we'll, we'll get we'll get to all of them dying in a bit but okay good. you know the, the problem at the moment is that once the peasants get a taste for land reform they just start doing it themselves and the ccp like tells him to stop the peasants are like no like we're gonna take this land now and you know as as as, as the scale as this escalates into like a full-scale civil war this this starts to it's crushed to create this huge rift in, in this there's a few other things that are happening too in this period 
that start that like there, there starts to be sort of these huge battles between the CCP and like the KMT's left and the right wing of the KMT. And this, all, well, everything Mao is doing is just sort of like escalating this. Now, the other reason I bring up Mao is that I think there's more similarities between Mao and Zhang than you'd expect. You know, they're, they're, they're both men who were born on sort of the outskirts of Chinese society, who are both, you know, they're both sort of nobodies until they're swept up in the, revol- in the tumult of early 20th century revolutionary politics. And, and basically by sheer chance, they go on to become extremely important historical figures. Now, most importantly for our purposes, Mao and Zhang are probably the two most famous poets in China in this period. And, and I don't think a lot of people know this about Mao, but by, by like an incredible quirk of history, Mao is one of the great Chinese classical poets. Like if you it's study so Chinese weird. poetry in university, like you read Mao. Like it's he's that so important here. That that's that's also true of Stalin. Like he wasn't he didn't write nearly as many poems, but he was a very well regarded Georgian poet, and they're both leaders of the two big communist parties. Yeah. Like that that's that's I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's something about uh <laughs> controlling a, a, an all-powerful party apparatus that also makes you good at meter. Actually, that does kind of make sense. Okay. <laughs> I, I can see it. I can see it. We're, we're, yeah. we're, so we, we, we've developed the, like, let them go to art school theory of fascists, and now we're developing mm-hmm. the uh, never let the, po- Don't the poets let them. have If you see power. somebody writing a poem, just start hitting them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I do think Mao is, like, he's, I think he's a really interesting example of this. There's, like, a, there's a famous, like, Stephen Jay Gould quote that goes, like, I, I'm somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. And, like, yeah. Mao, Mao is one of those people who very easily could have died just, like, a completely unknown peasant. And instead, you know, he becomes a world-renowned poet. It's... And some know. other stuff. Yeah, yeah, just a shame that he also wound up being Mao. <laughs> Yeah, he has he has a, he does a couple of things in his life. Old Mao. Yeah. Now, now. And this is important for our purposes. Zhang is also a famous Chinese poet. And I, I've OK, I, Robert, I, I want you to read this poem. He's a big dicked warrior poet is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I want you to read this poem that I've just put in the chat. That's called OK. Poem about bastards. Oh, oh, fuck. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's do this. OK. Is this the whole poem? This is the whole poem. You tell me to do this. He tells me to do that. You're all bastards. Go fuck your mother. <laughs> That's a good poem. I assume it. I assume it rhymes more in the original no, language, but I thing. still here's like the, it. Here's the thing, right? So you would think that it sounds better in Chinese, and no, it doesn't. Because that's, <laughs> I'm going to say it then, that's not really a poem. It's that's that's, that's a guy telling someone to go fuck his mother. Yeah, um, that, that's like a running theme for him. He, he, he's really into the, he's really into the, the motherfucking stuff. Okay. Now, okay. I, I mean, it's not bad. You know, I, I, I get, it's the kind of thing if he were like, for example, an actual like li- revolutionary fighting for liberty, as opposed to a vicious warlord um, who rapes women. <laughs> this would have a little bit more bite because he's the one telling people to do things. Yeah. Like, nobody's <laughs> told this guy what to do in quite a while at this point yeah. of the story. <laughs> no, no, he, he, he writes a lot of poems. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to do one more because it's great. And so th- this one, this one has a story behind it. So, so in 1927, we've talked about this a bit. There's, there's this big drought in Shandong. Mm-hmm. And so Zhang goes to basically he goes to like a local local temple of the dragon emperor 
and he prays for rain. And, and he writes this just spectacular poem about the ordeal. The dragon emperor is also named Zhang. Why does he make life hard for me? If it doesn't <laughs> rain in three days, I'll demolish, I'll demolish your temple, and then I'll have cannons bombard your mom. Can't can't cannons bombard your mom? Okay, I will shoot your mom. Is yeah. is the gist I'm taking out of with that a poem. cannon? You know or what? Two. Solid flex. All right. Well, you know, and he, here's 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 the fun part about this. So it, so he writes this poem while he's waiting for three days for it to rain. It doesn't rain. So he goes back to the temple, and he like he like there's there's like a mass of people praying to this idol of, of the of of the dragon emperor. He like walks up to the idol, slaps it, and yells, "Fuck your sister! How dare you make Shangdong's people suffer by not giving us rain?" And then he brings a bunch of cannons up to the temple and just starts shooting them at the sky to bombard the heavens in in what I can only read as one of the earliest attempts to attack and dethrone God. Now, the next day, it rained. And I, I, I will let you all make of that what you will. I mean, we're in the middle of a drought in Oregon here, so I may I may steal that one. I may steal a couple of things from this guy. I'm going to be entirely honest. I'm going to steal a number of things from this guy. Hey, shoot cannons at the sky, it'll make it rain. I, I already do like shooting at the sky. I mean, there are some, like... There are some like, I mean, that, that's something China does today, right? Like there's some attempts to kind of like see now it's not just shooting guns, at, but like to seed clouds in order to kind of bring rain on. Like that's a thing that gets done. Yeah. And th- there, there's a theory. I don't buy it. Although again, I'm not a chemist, but th- there's actually a theory that like be- because of like the residue on the, the gunpowder or something of the cannons that like this like replicated the effect of the cloud seeding stuff. And I, yeah, I mean, it says that I'm just looking this up now. It says they, they use silver iodide rockets and it looks like, um, it looks like the actual science on this is kind of, um, not, not settled. Uh, I, I don't, I certainly don't know enough to say whether or not it is, but I could see how silver iodide could also be a byproduct of firing cannons in the sky. Yeah. I mean, yeah, weird things happen. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Sure. What I'm hearing is that to deal with this drought, um, Oregon needs me to start start shooting at the sky. I mean, is isn't it so, legal to just like wheel cannons around? Like, are, uh, there's no law against cannons yeah. at all that I'm aware of. Yeah, in most you, states you, they count as a curio in relic, which means they're unregulated. Oh, uh-huh. this is this is okay. As long as the ball they fire does not itself explode, I'm fairly certain you can do anything you want with a cannon. Now I'm 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 having I'm having a series of visions that involve you in a bunker with oh, man, with me too, <laughs> me too, and a bunch of cannons. Oh. Yeah, I'm starting the GoFundMe right now. Yeah, and GoFundMe uh, several cannons you, so that Oregon will have a rainy season again. Hey, Robert, you know who else will fund you? Wow, that was a good one. I mean, they absolutely do. That fund was me. a good one. Uh, that was. <laughs> I'm just, good job, Sophie. Yeah, uh, the products and services that support this podcast. Uh, and they do, they have bought me a number of things that are similar in nature to cannons. Anyway, here's ads, motherfuckers. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. 
Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Uh, we're all just having a, a real zip bang, wow, hoozly doozly do of a time. So he shoots some clouds, which I think we've decided was a good decision. Uh, what's next? Yeah. So, so, okay. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on whose side you're on, uh, 
this is shooting shooting guns at clouds is not the only thing the nationalists have been doing in this period, and they're not. It's not the only thing the warlords have been doing in this period either. So, the warlords like look south and are like, okay, this is a large army with a lot of Soviet support. We we need we need to sort of, you know, we, we need to start getting ready to fight them. So in 1926, Zhang Zhiling and his allies form something called the National Pacification Army, which is. The best explanation of it I can give is that it's like the United Front for Warlords. It's mm-hmm. like like all, all oh, the warlords. Good. So class solidarity for guys with armies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's kind of remarkable because all of these people hate each other and have spent the last, uh, what is this, this is 26 by now, so 10 years just like murdering each other over nothing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when, when yeah, when, when, when their ass is on the line, they come together and... They have shared interests. Yeah, yeah. And so you get Zhang Zhiling, Zhang Zhang Chong, and... The Jade Marshal, Wu Peifu, who is back after somehow managing to pull together enough of his territory and his troops to, like, be a kind of significant power again, but is now uh, fighting on the side of his former rival and the man who sent him into exile because warlord period. And, you know, they they, they at, at first look like a pretty formidable army, but they're immediately weakened when Wu Peifu, who really... Like, this man should just honestly be called the marshal of getting owned by his own subordinates, because... So he goes to fight the Nationalists, and then his army immediately collapses because he's betrayed by one of his generals again for the second time in two years. Yeah, class solidarity only goes so far when your class is guys with armies uh, and no conscience. Yeah, and, you know, and this is, this is the other thing, like, the, 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 the single best strategy that you can possibly have in the Warlord period is to defect. Mm-hmm. Now, this this leaves the warlords in a pretty bad position, and it's here with the National Pacification Army just like completely unable to stop the nationalist advance that Zhang makes the first of two mistakes that would cost him everything. So Zhang had been given two jobs by Zhuo Ling. One of them was to defend Shanghai. The the other one was to confront a nationalist advance around Nanjing. And to reinforce, reinforce the troops of one of the sort of more unreliable warlords in the coalition. Now, that warlord's troops had been doing okay against the nationalists, but Zhang, like, I think justifiably worried that this guy is going to defect for the fourth time in two years. He's like, okay, this, this yeah, guy's... this it guy does is, seem like yeah. the thing to do. It seems like everyone defects constantly. Yeah, like he's, he's so gone yes, traitor three times. I can see times. why he would be worried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so Zhang is Zhang is worried this guy's going to defect again. So so he he sends most of his army to reinforce like that guy. And by by reinforce, I mean he wants to put an army next to him so he doesn't defect. And but, but this this is a complete disaster. Um, the, the part of his army that Zhang sends to defend Shanghai just gets completely destroyed. And the other warlord subordinates hate Zhang so much that like they defect to the KMT rather than like be on the same side as him. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's bad. <laughs> it sounds like he pissed off some people. Yeah. But it's funny because it's not like like the, the other warlords like the other warlord isn't good either, but like man, Jong, Jong, Jong is a tier above all of the rest of the Chinese warlords when it comes to just warlording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean Jong like he wins the battle at Nanjing, but it doesn't it's it's a it's the definition of a Fyrick victory because in the middle of all of this sort of inconclusive fighting, the workers take Shanghai. Now, t- t- uh, yeah. That's exactly where you don't want the workers if you're this guy. Nope. <laughs> so, so to understand what, what this means or how this happened, we need to go back a little bit. So, so after the general strike in 1925 ends, 
the, the general labor union and the communists, they, they start working on this plan to take the city. And they make their first attempt, which is called the First Armed Uprising, in late 1926. Uh, this this doesn't work at all. It's, it's a complete failure. And here you get to see just the, the unbelievable brutality of the warlord governments. Um, I'm, I'm going to read this passage from the delightfully named Hans J. Vanderven's book uh, called War and Nationalism in China, which describes the aftermath of, of the, the failed First Armed Uprising. Okay. A judge went about the streets, accompanied by someone carrying a shield with the martial law text on it. Anyone suspected of revolutionary activity, even something like leafleting, was executed on the spot by two broadsworded executioners, after which their heads were displayed on bamboo pikes. Smith recalls a story that one street hawker, shouting, Buy my cakes, was stabbed by a soldier who thought he was crying, Defeat the army. Several hundred people were killed. I don't speak Mandarin or... um any other languages but English, which I also barely speak. In the language this guy was speaking, does buy my cakes sound at all like a little defeat bit? the army? Okay, okay. It's, it's kind of I'm just of wondering similar. how plausible that is. Like, it's kind of similar, but like, it's not, I don't know. Like, it, 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 it's similar enough that, that like, I can, like, I, I, I'm pretty sure this happened. It's not okay, it's similar enough. it's an oopsie enough. doodles then. Yeah, but, but it's not similar enough that, like, anyone who's not just completely hyped up on murder is going to mistake them well i mean look if you've never murdered anybody it it's a hoot i don't know where i was going with there please continue <laughs> it's very scary yeah Robert, <laughs> what sovi you know the motto of this podcast is abm always be murdering no it's cut what robert says so i can keep it <laughs> yeah that that is the motto of the podcast uh and thank you Let's let's move right along. Now, you know, in, in the face of all this violence, it is a genuinely incredible testament to the raw capacity that are for like our, the raw power of our capacity for resistance that this doesn't work. Like people people see their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers, their families decapitated in the street and impaled on pikes. And the next month they do it again. In in February 1927 there's a second armed uprising 300,000 workers undeterred by the possibility that they too could end up on a pike stage what was to that point the largest strike in shanghai's history now this too fails because the armed uprising and the strikes weren't coordinated enough but the third <laughs> armed uprising on march 21st 1927 finally takes the city see guys third time's a charm with armed uprisings yeah we're, we we did one and that's all I'm going to say on the matter. And, well, and that, um, one, that one was barely armed. That like, was barely armed. Yeah. I mean, like, one side was very heavily armed. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> now, 800,000 um, workers just blow the pre- all previous record for the largest strike in geez. Shanghai history out of the water. And, yeah, that's a protest the size of the city I live in. Yeah. And, and the warlord <laughs> troops, like, somewhat understandably, just, like, flee rather than face them. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, I've I've seen cops do that. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I imagine they felt pretty good. Yeah, unfortunately, um, unbeknownst to the triumphant workers who were in the process of setting up an elected citizens government to run the city, they had already been betrayed. Oh well, yeah, that also scans. Yeah, as as March turned to April, open battles between the left and right wing of the KMT were raging across China. Yeah. Here we go. The right wing of the nationalists began to slaughter workers everywhere they found a union. 
But even as their nominal comrades fell to the machine guns, communist and left KMT leadership told the workers of Shanghai to let Chiang Kai-shek's army into the city. The workers greeted the nationalists with jubilation. Chiang, on the other hand, immediately went to go meet with the head of the Green Gang, the guy, the guy he'd pledged allegiance to several years earlier. And with weapons provided by the French and intelligence provided by the British, the Green Gang and the nationalist troops began to slaughter the striking workers. Now, the workers' armed pickets fought back, and 200,000 workers went back on strike, even in the midst of the confusion of the sort of nationalist-communist split. But disorganized by the surprise attack, and with, with right-wing nationalist troops already in the city, the workers were defeated, and Chiang Kai-shek's white terror, first white terror, had begun. And, and I say first here, that's very important, because uh, Chiang's going to do a second white terror in Taiwan in the late 40s, but that, that, that's another story for another time. By, by the seems end, like a nice guy. Yeah. It, it, oh, boy. But by the end of the purges, somewhere between 300,000 and a million people lay dead in the dirt at the hands of men their leaders had told them to trust. The source of this disaster was Moscow, which, by the structure of the Leninist Party and through the discipline of the Third International, maintained near total supremacy over the communist political line. It had been Moscow that had forced the communists into the alliance with the nationalists in the first place. Moscow and their handpicked leaders that had told the communists to stay in the united front as it collapsed around them. And now, as the situation continued to worsen, the surviving communists waited with bated breath for the master stroke from Moscow that could save them from this disaster. What they got was Stalin and Trotsky bickering. Yeah, the, yeah, that it, also completely scans. Yeah, the, the order from Moscow, I, I'm going to read some of the provisions of it because it it's completely incoherent. So, okay, so the, the order is... Okay, you have to get you have to ask the peasants to start doing land seizures, but also you must prevent them from taking any land from any soldier, which is like a lot of the land which is owned by soldiers. And then also simultaneously, they're they're supposed to raise an army of seventy thousand communist troops, but also like that's like an independent communist army, but also stay in the Nationalist Party and the United Fronts, but then also while being in the Nationalist Party, uh, oppose Chiang Kai Shek at the same time. It's the assembled leaders as Shanghai as, as Elizabeth Perry described in Shanghai on strike quote didn't know whether to laugh or cry the, the the head of the CCP described the telegram as quote taking a bath in a toilet <laughs> yeah so, so Moscow mm. in the final critical hour had delivered nothing but ruin and in the years that followed almost the entire urban workers movement will be annihilated yeah that... yeah yep Folks, this is why, uh, yeah, I don't don't have an organization who that that can be entirely destroyed because Stalin and Trotsky were bickering. Bad organizational yeah, don't, structure. Don't, as a general rule, one of the things we advise our listeners is don't 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 trust Stalin. Yep, uh, bad idea. Anything. Don't re- don't rely on Stalin. Um, I know a lot of our listenership. Uh, are in 1919 Russia right now. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to end well, guys. Don't um, trust him. Don't try uh-huh. to outdrink him. You know. <laughs> in fairness to our listeners in 1919 Russia, pretty much no matter what you do, it's going to end badly. So just, yeah. um, I don't know. Flee- Go to Ukraine. Ukraine seems like it's it's just going to be a solid solid upward upward trajectory for, for the next you know, hundred years. Fam- fam- famously, a country having a great time has no problems ever. Famously stable Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay. So. Yeah. So so in in the chaos of this, uh, you know the, the 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 next Chinese civil war. You know, it's called the Chinese civil war, but like, 
there's already so many civil wars. So the next Chinese civil war between the nationalists and the communists should have been a godsend to the warlords. And in the immediate aftermath of the suppression of the Shanghai Uprising, warlord forces were temporarily able to halt the nationalist advance. But then disaster struck. After one of his allies suffered a, dev a devastating defeat, Zhang was ordered to invade Henan province. And, and okay, I, I want to make clear here that what's about to happen isn't entirely Zhang's fault. Zhuo Ling like, refused to send him any reinforcements, and so Zhang is left to attack this whole province like by himself with only one just like incredibly unreliable minor warlord as his ally. Now, his ally almost immediately proceeds to make just like a series of incredibly reckless, over-reckless attacks, and is just destroyed by a nationalist counterattack. And in response, Zhang makes the single largest tactical blunder of his entire career. He, he launches this massive full-scale assault on Kaifeng, and it's just it's just completely destroyed by the nationalists. And the, the counterattack, nationalist counterattack kills not just a, like his troops. This attack kills most, like a, a pretty good portion of his senior commanders, which is extremely rare in, in battles in this period. You, you almost never like lose your senior commander, but he loses a bunch of them. And he also loses four of his six beloved armored trains, several of oh, them. No. Yeah, he loses the armor trains, and, and a bunch of the white Russians like get slaughtered when a bunch of yeah. Chinese, yeah, like pissed off Chinese people. Like they 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 man they finally manage to cut off like the rail lines, and they just like walk into the car and just like murder all the white Russians. Yeah. I'm fine with that, more or less. Yeah, um, I you know but... good 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 on good good on the nationalists. One of the few times I'll ever say this, but good on them. Yeah, I'm fine with that. The trains, though, they yeah. didn't do anything. Well, to hurt well, okay, anybody. but when, well, when they I say did hurt a lot of people, but there were trains. Yeah, yeah, but okay, but okay, but here's the thing: when I say loss, I mean they were like they're they're all captured, and because because oh, of armored okay, trains, okay, yeah, they were fine. Look, yeah, the trains don't trains. care who's who they're killing. Yeah. as long as they get to kill, like kill some of so, some of these trains are like on their seventh owner already. So, mm -hmm. yeah, they're gonna the, the 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 trains will be in service until they're destroyed by the Japanese in 1931. Yeah, they were the Toy Toyotas of their day. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah, w without his trains, Jong is Jong is in a bad spot. Um he's able to sort of cobble together some of his army, but like th this is not the army that like the baby squad had led in 1924. This is, yeah, it's it's completely demoralized, and, you know, without the trains, very important, the, 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 the speed of the trains is what basically allows them to counterattack, and a lot of Zhang's success had been from just sort of, like, being able to outposition and sort of outmaneuver his opponents, but when he returns to Shandong in 1928, he can't do this anymore, because, you know, the trains are gone, and... He instead digs this like giant series of trenches. He's like, in this, in this, like, you know, he has this determination, just like he's going to fight this out. And the nationalists just go around them. <laughs> like, <laughs> they imagine Noah's ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they attack him from behind, and his army's routed again. Um, and Zhang attempts to flee to Manchuria with the remains of his army to continue the war. But Zhang Zhuling, his army sort of likewise in shambles after a series of defeats by the nationalists, uh, gets assassinated by the Japanese in late 1929. Or, sorry, late 1928. And this is a problem for Zhang because control of Manchuria passes to Zhuo Ling's son, who very quickly looks at the map and is like, the nationalists have taken literally all the country except for Manchuria, they're going to win this war. And so he, he starts preparing to flip sides. And he, so, you know, because he's preparing to like flip sides, he refuses to let Zhang into Manchuria. And Zhang like tries to fight his way in, but he can't do it. And so 
Jong as like he's basically like the like one of the last lo- like warlords standing makes this like heroic triumphant final stand with his back to the Great Wall of China and his army is promptly completely destroyed by the nationalists after his white Russian mercenaries defect and he flees to he he's able to he, he turns like right before he loses the battle he turns the city over to the Japanese and then flees to another Japanese controlled part of China and so for 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 you know for like a few months Zhang's like kind of out of it but in 1929 Zhang apparently still very much believing that this was all a temporary setback and that he was in fact still going to do this uh, return. Mean, they'd all been temporary setbacks before. Yeah. So. You know, so you, you can't fault him. He's like, you know, whatever. If, if Wupe Fu can come back, like, yeah, maybe he can do it too. So, you know, and he, 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 he a bunch of, he's just, so, okay. So, so when, when the nationalists take Shandong, they, they, they do like basically a version of bathification. Except they they can they do the worst of both worlds where they put like Jong's subordinate in charge of the province as the warlord, but then also they fire all of his troops. So you have a warlord still ruling Shandong who everyone hates, and then also all of these troops are just like doing the bath party thing where they've just been fired and have no jobs. And so, in in nineteen twenty nine, Zhang like returns to Shandong Province with two of his former allies and some backing by the Japanese. Although it's sketchy to what extent that exactly, how, how much backing he got from the Japanese is unclear. But he seems to have gotten some backing, and he starts a rebellion with his former troops. And tens of thousands of his ex soldiers flock to his banner, but he's eventually defeated and forced to flee, like so many before him, to Japan. Now, Zhang spends about four months living quietly in Japan until a cousin of the last Chinese emperor who seems to have pissed him off by sleeping with one of what are now being called Zhang's wives. Zhang uh, just gets extremely mad at this guy. And so one night, he he sits, he's sitting like next to the window of his hotel room when the guy walks into the garden below him. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the description from Time because it's one of the most incredible things that ever been printed. This is from Time. Quote, At that moment, a bonnet... A pistol which Marshal Zhang happened to be holding happened to go off. The mm. bullet happened to strike the prince in the back, happened to kill him. Zhang claimed <laughs> this whole thing was an unfortunate accident. <laughs> it happened to have been he an the prince. <laughs> this is like oh <laughs> it's, it's it's like the most it's the it's the, the the single greatest example of they can't say he shot this guy that I've ever encountered in a media organization. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what, the other incredible thing about this is that okay, so he has just clearly murdered a dude. He has told the police that he was sitting on a balcony and then he fired a bullet and happened to go off. And the Japanese police, after again murdering a dude, are just like, yeah, whatever, just pay a hundred fifty dollar fine. <laughs> it's amazing yeah, he really did just cheney that guy yeah he like chains him and then like you know this is like th- I, don't, I don't know this 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 is some just like incredibly weird corrupt petty cr- like petty police stuff too where it's like yeah you murder this guy but like 150 dollar fine it's fine mm-hmm yeah. well no that's that's fair because like what is, yeah the 150 dollars was like i don't know worth a human life back then i mean okay to to be to be fair this guy is a cousin of puyi who's like one of the great world historical monsters Mm -hmm. arch traitor to mankind like 
enemy yeah, of all humanity. Not? So, you know, he's related to him. So, yeah, $150. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if if we developed a system of murder penalties uh, where it was based on how shitty the person you shot was. Yeah. Um, why not? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, having having escaped this, Jong, you know, he, he lives a fairly uneventful life with his mom and his, quote, wives for a few more years until the Japanese invaded Manchuria in 1931 to destroy our precious armored trains. Mm. Now, Zhang saw yet another opportunity <laughs> to make a comeback, and he travels to China in 1932, touting his ability to lead the anti-Japanese resistance. Unfortunately for him, in a train station in his home province, the nephew of a nationalist officer that Zhang had executed, like, some years before, jumped out and shot him. Zhang's final words yeah. were, quote, no good, <laughs> which, you know, I think that's as good of a closing remark on Zhang as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't argue with the man. That That's a fair thing to say when you've just been murdered. Oh, no, no good. <laughs> well, you know what? Not on board with this. <laughs> That's kind of my favorite thing he's done. <laughs> <laughs> this no is good. cancel culture! Oh, <laughs> uh, what a rad dude. Um, no notes. Great life. No good. Couple of notes. Couple of notes. A lot of notes, actually. But I like the trains. Um, and I like that his dick was the size of 86 pesos. <laughs> no good. It's <laughs> a lot of pesos for a dick. Yeah. No um, good. Well, Chris, this has been a wonderful journey um, into history that I did not know. Um, and it has taught me, again, more about pesos than I knew. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm very pleased with how today has gone. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You know, this, this is kind of like, you know, I, I wanted to say this is, like the, this is like the bad part of Chinese history, but like, no, every part of Chinese history is also the bad part of Chinese history. So... <laughs> No that to is the, the fun thing about history. Yeah. Every now and then you get a guy who, I don't know, invented sea monkeys in order to fund national socialism and we have a laugh, but it, there's a lot more, a lot more, I don't know, uh, uh, gangs of uh, uh, wives being forced against their will to be concubines and um, people being force fed uh, soy pucks uh, while they starve to death. More of that. Most of history. The good time. No good. Yeah. yeah. Most of Which history, is why no good. why why this podcast exists. Yeah, and why you've all just finished listening to two and a half hours about yeah. a real this podcast. Good, real no kooky character. I liked my joke. It was uh, thank funny. you, Sophie. <laughs> I appreciated it. Thank well, you. have any pluggables, Chris? Here at Behind the Bastards. Yeah, I am. I am at it me chr three on Twitter or the Ice Must Be Destroyed dude. Um, mm-hmm. I have I have a substack. As, as you are known to yes, at, uh, to your family. Yes, from from from, from a long and illustrious line of ice must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Actually, predates ice by quite a bit. Um, baffling story when you really get into it. Yeah, ice, no good. Yes, also yes, no good. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Chris. Well, yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you for having and thank me. Thank you at home for listening. Um, that's going to do it for us here at Behind the Bastards for the week. Until next week, grab an armored train, press gang a bunch of people, and force them into your militia, uh, get dozens of concubines, and, you know, eventually get shot to death. No good. Well, okay.
okay. You can do other things if you prefer. Okay. Bye now. <laughs> I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.